The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you follow the news at all, you've likely heard some discussion on the news about something called the Hyde Amendment. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, what is the Hyde Amendment? Well, in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court made abortion on demand legal across our country in their landmark decision Roe v. Wade. Three years later then, the U.S. House of Representatives passed what is called the Hyde Amendment. It's named after Congressman Henry Hyde from Illinois, and the amendment prohibits the use of federal tax dollars to pay for abortion unless the mother's life is in danger or in cases of incest or rape. The amendment itself was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Um, it passed the House by greater, of, greater than three to one vote. Over 300 people voted for it, less than 100 voted against it. Um, and it remained wildly bipartisan for decades after its initial passing. In fact, our current president was a lifelong supporter of the Hyde Amendment until he ran for president this last time. The point of the Hyde Amendment, though, was to protect the consciences of the American people. For those of us who thought or who still think that abortion is murder, the amendment provided relief for the conscience that we weren't actually paying for the abortions to happen through our tax dollars. You know, the idea was, well, abortion may be legal now, but don't make us pay for it. And again, for several decades, politicians from both sides of the aisle understood that and they agreed that it wasn't right to sin, if you will, against the consciences of the American people who held deeply religious beliefs about this particular issue. But that's really a political debate for another day. And it's an important debate, um, but we're not going to settle that issue right now. I want us to focus our attention on what happens here in the church and not with, not with respect to the Hyde Amendment, but what happens in the church with our responsibility to protect the consciences of one another here in the church? And again, I'm not talking about something that is clearly sinful as abortion, but I am talking about what Paul calls, um, in our text we'll see today, matters of opinion. Do, do we have a responsibility to protect the consciences of our brothers and sisters as it relates matters of opinion. And so let's take a look at the Word of God. If you're in Romans 14, say amen. 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 Wonderful. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, or excuse me, 1 through 12 from Romans 14. So follow along with me, please, as I read. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, and another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, Each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Your word again that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, Lord Jesus, now in our hearing of the word and as we sit now under the instruction of your word, Father, that you would help us, you would mold us, that you would shape us. Father, I pray that you would help me to say and to preach only that which is profitable, that which is good and true and in accordance with your words. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this time now to make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So if you're a note taker, our central idea today is that we do, we have a responsibility to protect the consciences of our brothers and sisters. And so if you're wondering why they you say yes, And I I believe Paul makes that point here in Romans 14. And I want to make three comments or three sub-points from this text today. And the first, first of those points is, some are weak and some are strong. Paul begins this passage today by dividing all Christians, every Christian, into two groups. We have those who are strong and we have those who are weak in faith. He says that right there in verse 14, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So the weak in faith are named right there. It's clear, right in black and white. I'll, I'll say in just a moment, what, is, what does it mean to be weak in faith? So hold on to that, that thought for just right now. But right there, we, we, we know that we have those who are weak in faith. But if you look at the text, you might you know, just kind of scratch your chin there a bit and say, where, where are these strong in faith that Paul is talking about? Because they're, they're nowhere named, if you will, in black and white as the weak in faith are, but they are there. They're right there in the text. The verb welcome is a command in this verse. Paul is commanding some group of people to welcome those who are weak in faith. Now, he's, he's obviously not commanding the weak in faith to welcome themselves, right? That would be silliness. And so he must be addressing some other group who aren't weak in the faith. And what might we call them? Well, you know, not to get too creative or anything, we might want to call them strong in faith. 
or at least relatively speaking, they're stronger in their faith than those who are weak in faith. And so we have these two groups. We have the strong and we have the weak. But now back to that other question. What does that mean, though, to be weak in faith? Some scholars have argued that to be weak in faith, that those are, those are individuals who don't really grasp the Gospel in its entirety. They don't grasp that salvation is by faith alone. These individuals, it's argued, didn't understand that salvation was by faith alone. They, they thought that you needed to add some works to their faith in order to complete their salvation. So, for example, here in our text, faith alone isn't enough for salvation, but you also need to abstain from certain foods if you want to be saved. And that's what's argued was meant by the weak in faith. But I think we can safely reject that idea. And we can see that from our own text. Paul, Paul clearly is tolerating the weak in faith. He, he's not saying anything negative about those who are weak in faith. But if the weak in faith were actually teaching that you had to abstain from certain foods in order to be saved, that would mean that they're actually teaching a different gospel than Paul preached. And Paul wouldn't be tolerating them if they were teaching a different gospel. He would actually be commanding them to repent um, and to believe the true gospel. And so it's, it's not that they don't understand the gospel in its entirety. It's more likely that the weak in faith believe that abstaining from certain foods would actually make them ultimately stronger Christians. You see, we, we don't have any hint from the text that they were trying to impose their beliefs on the strong so that the strong would be quote-unquote saved. That's not what they're doing. It's just a matter that they believed that they believed that God would be more pleased with them if they didn't eat meats, if they only ate vegetables. And part of this if we put ourselves in a first century context, part of this was no doubt due to the fact that the meats that could have been purchased in the marketplace were oftentimes, if not every time, they were meats that had been previously sacrificed to pagan idols. And the weak in faith, they didn't want to have anything to do with eating meats that had been sacrificed to idols. It, it, it was as if they were saying, listen, if that meat has been a sacrifice to an idol, I don't want to have a part of it. I don't want to be complicit in idol worship. Now, Paul writes more about that topic, um, if you're interested in that topic, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a brief chapter, uh, but it's a great chapter, and I highly commend it to you. I'm not going to read it for you right now. Uh, that, that's your homework for later. You can read 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, but we have this dichotomy of strong and weak, and this dichotomy, it continues even to this day. There are those, even still to this day, who believe that, they should, that, that Christians ought to continue to follow these dietary restrictions in order to leave, live a life that's more pleasing to God. Now, in our day, it usually doesn't have anything to do with you know, meats that were sacrificed to idols anymore. But still, people believe that these dietary restrictions are the best idea for Christians. But there are other ways this dichotomy between the strong and the weak shows itself. In our modern world, for example, there are Christians who believe that watching television um, is a way, or to, to rather to give up watching television, is a way that we can live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, I find it interesting, as I, as I was studying this week, I find it interesting that 
the idea of giving up television and similar media consumption, by the way, it's actually closely akin to the original first century objection about meats. You see, for, for many moderns, uh, modern Christians in particular, they believe that the entire um, entertainment industry is so irretrievably broken and sinful that to participate in watching any of it is to participate in the sin of that matter. And so, as a matter of conscience, they decide not to do that. Now, others make similar decisions with respect to music, the music you listen to, or the amusements you participate in. And then we have those who are stronger in faith in our modern world. And where they say, well, I don't have any problem eating meat. And I don't have a problem with watching television shows, or at least most television shows. And those who are stronger in faith, they, want to, they emphasize the, this biblical principle that I have liberty as a Christian. That I have liberty to participate in certain activities. And you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 9. So you read chapters 8 and 9 right back to back and you'll learn more about that. And so we have these two groups, both in the ancient world as well as in the modern world. We have these two groups, those who are weak and those who are strong. And in verse 1, Paul tells the strong to welcome the weak and not to quarrel over opinions. And so, in other words, if you consider yourself, like just do some self-examination right now. If you consider yourself, well, I think I'm part of that strong and faith group right now. That's who I am. Well, then you have a responsibility to welcome the weak. You have a God-given, and not only God-given, but God-commanded responsibility to have a welcoming posture toward those who are weak. But not only do we have a posture to welcome those who are weak, Paul goes on to say, he says, you're also not to quarrel over opinions with the weak. What does that mean? When, when might we find ourselves quarreling over opinions? And we need to be careful here about what does that mean to quarrel over opinions because the Scriptures also teach us that, that we have a responsibility to contend earnestly for the faith. And so there are some things, in other words, that are worth fighting over. There are some things that are worth quarreling over. You know, If someone were to deny, for example, the full deity of Jesus, they say, I don't believe Jesus was God. That's something we're going to quarrel over, okay? If, if someone were to deny that God exists eternally as a trinity, as Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, if you say, no, I don't believe that's who God is, we're going to fight over that. We're going to contend earnestly over that. This is where, by the way, why, why churches have a statement of faith. And this is where our church's statement of faith comes to be very, very important. And so as a church... Our statement of faith is what's called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. You can find it online. Just type in Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and pop, it's going to come up right for you. Um, This was our statement of faith before I ever got here, but it's a very good statement of faith. And it's the one we continue to have. And what a statement of faith does then is it, it sets some boundaries for us on what Scripture teaches it sets some boundaries, if you will, and says, okay, this is a matter of, of opinion, but this, no, we believe that the, 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 the Scriptures faithfully teach this, and these aren't matters of opinion. This is what we believe the Scripture to be teaching. And so just, just to give you a for example, I think there are 18 articles in that statement of faith. I'm going to read just one of them to you. This is the 15th article. It's on Christians and the social order. It says, our, this is from our statement of faith. This is what, if you're a member here, this is what you say, I believe this. Okay? It's our statement of faith. All Christians are under obligation to seek 
to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. So in other words, basically what he's saying, permanent change is only possible when people come to Christ. All right, that's a shorthand way of saying that. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception until natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and His truth. Now that's a mouthful, right? And that's only number 15. So we've got 16, or 17 more of those. Um, and so as a church, we've said, we've said by believing that we, we believe that these things are not matters of opinion. We're not going to quarrel over these. We're going to say that these things are worth fighting over. And so, if, in other words, to, to bring that into a, a simple discussion, if you believe it's okay for a Christian to be a racist, or you believe it's okay for a Christian to participate in sexual immorality, or you, if you believe that the sanctity of human life is something that we shouldn't be talking about, etc., 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 well, then you probably shouldn't join this church. Because we're going to be talking about those things all the time. You should go and find a church that does believe it's okay to be a racist. Okay? If that's what you believe. But if you remember here, and you're confronted over those issues, then my point is, we don't, we don't go back to Paul and say, well, Paul says not to quarrel over opinions. Well, our statement of faith says this isn't a matter of opinion. We believe that this is what the Bible is faithfully teaching. Are you, you following? Are you tracking with me on that? But, on the other hand, if you think that eating only vegetables is more pleasing to God... If you think, well, I think that's more pleasing to God, but you're not saying, okay, that's required for salvation. You just believe it's just more pleasing to God to eat vegetables. Well, then that's a matter of opinion, and you're welcome to have that matter of opinion. You know, nobody's going nobody's gonna to press church discipline against you for being a vegetarian, okay? So we don't need to quarrel over those opinions. In verse 2, we're told that the, that the strong feels as if he can eat anything, but the weak feels as if he can only eat vegetables. But notice this in verse 3. The strong person, Paul says, is not to despise the weak person because he chooses to abstain from eating meats. Or to put a more modern slant on it, the strong person shouldn't despise the weak person because the weak person doesn't think it's a good idea to watch television. Now, just, just a quick aside here. You know, I've been using television as one of my examples of saying that you know, where we have weak and strong. I, I hope we would all agree that there are some things that come on television and similar medias that, that we should all say, you, know, you shouldn't be watching that. Okay? In, in other words, don't go home and think, well, I'm pretty strong, so I can watch porn if I want to watch porn. No, no, no. That, that's, that's, that is improper. That would be taking this text completely incorrectly. Okay? But there are people who are weak in faith and they believe that all television 
should be off limits. And on that particular point, we could say we we could make a division that we have some people who are stronger in their faith and some people who are weaker in their faith. And it's okay to have those groups. So back to our text here. They're in the first half of verse 3. The strong, they're told not to despise the weak. But notice this in the second half of verse 3. It says the weak are not to, quote, pass judgment, unquote, on the strong because God has already welcomed the strong. Sometimes we think, we think it's, well, it's the responsibility of the strong to take care of the weak, to protect the weak. And again, it is that. But I want you to notice here from verse 3 that it goes both ways. The strong are to despise the weak, but the weak aren't to pass judgment on the strong. And what might, what might that look like for the weak to pass judgment on the strong? Well, here's, here's an example of what passing judgment might look like. The weak person looks at the strong person um, who, who not only has a television in his house, but has four big screen TVs in his house that are on basically 24 hours a day. And so the weak person then judges the strong person and says, well, he's just not as spiritual as I am. You know, you, say, you, know, you know, I heard that his marriage is in trouble. And if he would just stop watching so much television and spend more time in the Word of God, then he could save his marriage. That's judging the strong person. And when we judge someone, when we pass judgment on someone else, it's a reflection of our own heart. Now, could it be true that this individual needs to stop watching so much television and spend more time in the Word? Absolutely, that could be true. That, that absolutely could be true. But the judgmental person thinks of himself as more spiritual than the other person, more in line with what God's will and therefore, he stands in judgment over the other person. And so listen, if you, if you have a friend who's spending 40 plus hours a week watching different media sources and spending four less or less minutes a week in the Word of God, then if that person's your friend, maybe you ought to have a conversation with, about their priorities and say, really? I mean, do you have your priorities right? Are you, are you spending where you, where you need to spend? But I hope you see the difference there between having a conversation with somebody and then passing judgment against that person and making value judgments about that person. Paul tells us in verse 4, he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Translation, when it comes to passing judgment over things that never rise above the level of opinion, we need to stay in our lane. Okay, Stay in your lane. We can let God pass judgment. That's not our role. It's His. I'll say more, and I'll say much more about that in just a moment. Now to point number two. We all submit to the Lordship of Christ. We all submit to the Lordship of Christ. In verse 5, Paul continues with this distinction between the strong and the weak. And this time, instead of starting with food, he starts with a person who, who values one day as better than another day. Now, he'll get to that food argument again. He's not leaving that. Um, he'll come back to that. But right now in verse 5, one person esteems a day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Now, the, the background to this would certainly have been the Jewish holy days. 
And just to take one obvious example that the church had to deal with, and frankly, some Christians are still dealing with even to this day, is the Jewish Sabbath day. The day when Jews were commanded to rest. For those of you who don't know, the Sabbath day was, and it still is, Saturday. In other words, the seventh day of the week on the Jewish calendar is Saturday. That is, that is the day uh, when God rested from His work in creation. That is the day to which the fourth commandment is pointing and referring when it says to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But Jesus rose from the dead not on a Saturday. He rose from the dead on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And consequently, Christians have been gathering to worship on Sunday morning, very, very early on Christian in Christian history. As a matter of fact, so early, we see it even within the pages of the New Testament. So before the New Testament was even finished, the Christians are already gathering on Sunday morning to worship. But even today, so some 2,000 years later, even today, we have Christian denominations like some like the Seventh-day Adventists who still worship on the Sabbath day or on Saturday. If you drive by the Seventh-day Adventist church this way, um, on um, Bumpy Oak Road uh, on a Saturday morning, at least when the pandemic's not in the... You'll, you'll find their parking lot full of cars, right? You drive by there right now on Saturday, Sunday morning, it's empty. And so, so what are we to make of these days? That's basically what Paul... What are we to make of these days? Is one day better than another? Is it better to worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday? Well, obviously, as a congregation, we, we've chosen that worship is best on Sunday. And, and personally, I think that Sunday is the best that that fits it fits the biblical evidence best i believe that's where the preponderance of biblical evidence points us to but then are the seventh day adventists are they in sin because they're worshiping on saturday well no they're not in sin for worshiping on saturday it's not a sin they're still our brothers and sisters in christ but they under, understand the scriptures pointing to to keep the sabbath holy and to worship on saturday whereas we Say, Sunday is the time that we should be gathering together for worship. But look with me here. This is important. Look with me there at the end of verse 5. Paul says this. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So in, in other words, if you're fully convinced in your own mind, for example, that Sundays are the right day to worship, then you should gather to worship on Sundays. If, that's, if you're fully convinced of that, and I would even go to one step further. I believe the scriptures would take this one step further as well. That if you're convinced, you're absolutely convinced in your mind that Sundays are the right day to worship and you choose then to worship on Saturday, then you're actually sinning against your own conscience. You're not sinning in, 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 that you're violating what the Word of God commands, but you're sinning against your own conscience because you believe something. You, you're, your conscience being bound to the Word of God. You say, the Word of God teaches this, but I'm not going to do it. And you sin then against your own conscience. And just listen, it's never a good idea, never a good idea to sin against your own conscience. And so when we observe one day over another, Paul teaches us in verse 6, he says, and these are super important words, he says, we observe it in honor of the Lord. He says, of the one who eats meat, he eats it. Notice how he eats it. In honor of the Lord. Still in verse 6, the one who abstains from eating the meat. Notice this, he abstains, how? In honor of the Lord. 
In other words, we make these decisions about matters, again, that don't rise above opinion. We're not talking about things where the Bible clearly says, thou shalt. These are things about opinion. And we're fully convinced in our mind that this is what the Scriptures teach, where we say, my, my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And when we do that, we live in a way, uh, we, we, or we live in that way in order to bring glory to God under the Lordship of Christ. We honor the Lord in how we're living. And so if a person's conscience believes that it's wrong to eat meats, then under the Lordship of Christ, that person shouldn't eat meat. And that person then doesn't eat meat to the glory of God. And if another person's conscience believes that it's wrong to watch television, then under the Lordship of Christ, that person shouldn't be watching television. And they don't watch television then unto the glory of God. But for the person who believes it's okay to watch television, well, then he or she, they watch television to the glory of God. Paul tells us in verses 7 and 8, he says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that we don't belong to ourselves. Okay? Personal personal autonomy is a myth. We do not belong to ourselves. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we've been bought with a price and therefore we should honor God in our bodies. Jesus is Lord, not us. We belong to Him. We submit our lives to His Lordship. He, or rather, we give ourselves to Him. And what's more, there will never be a time in our lives, never be a time in our lives when we don't belong to Him. From birth until death, all of us, we belong to Jesus. Did you notice how many times in this passage, whether we live, we do, we do this to Christ, or whether we die, we do it from from birth to death. Remember what First Corinthians two teaches, Philippians two, or, yeah, not First Corinthians, Philippians two teaches. Teaches that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In other words, we all, whether you're a Christian today or you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this. You belong to Jesus. He is Lord. Now, you can live however you want to live. You can claim personal autonomy if you wish. We can say, yeah, I identify with this lifestyle or that lifestyle or with this gender or that. You can claim all of that if you wish. But in the end, it doesn't matter because Jesus is Lord. And whether you say that right now in this world or whether you're at the judgment of Christ, you say that. You are going to say that. Jesus is Lord. But have you ever wondered why He's Lord? I mean, What makes him Lord? Paul addresses that question head on. Look with me at verse 9. He says in verse 9, For to this end, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Here's Here's what Paul is saying in no uncertain terms. He's telling us that Jesus is Lord because of his death, burial, and resurrection. That first Easter Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago was a game changer. It changed everything. 
You see, the Jewish authorities thought they had crushed a troublemaker. The Roman authorities thought that they had ended a possible insurrection. The devil and his demons of hell thought that they had won a victory. And let's be fair. It looked mighty gloomy on that first Good Friday, didn't it? When Jesus was taken off the cross and put in the grave, it looked gloomy. It looked as as if the Jewish leaders had won. It looked as if the Roman authorities had won. It looked as if the demons of hell had won. But on the third day, up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph over His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And it was by His resurrection that Paul tells us in the first chapter of Romans that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in glory. When Jesus died on that cross, He was paying the penalty that you and I owe for our sins. And when God raised Him from the dead, God was declaring and stamping, if you will, paid in full. If you want to know more about what that means, I would love to have a chance to talk with you about that. Let's move on to our final point right now. Point number three, God alone is judge. Paul begins verse 10 by saying, why do you pass judgment on your brother? That's that's Paul's question to the weak in faith. Remember, they were judging those who were strong. And then he says, or why do you despise your brother? Well, that's Paul's question to those who are strong in faith because they were despising those who are weak in faith. So so he's he's not leaving anybody out here. He's an equal opportunity offender right here. Nobody's going away scot-free. Everybody is receiving this question. And then he reminds us all, he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Maybe you thought that only non-Christians would have to stand before the judgment seat of God. You know, Christians, we're, we're going to get a pass. Praise God, we're going to get a pass. Man, no, don't, 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 don't hurry that up. We're, we're not going to get a pass. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We, we all have that day to look forward And then Paul quotes from that passage that Anna read for us earlier in the service. He quotes from Isaiah 45. It's in verse 11 of of chapter 14. He says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. No one will escape that judgment of God. Or as Paul says it in verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, now for most of us, we we don't know when that day is coming. We don't know when we're going to give that accounting. Uh, one thing is certain, we're, we're 24 hours closer to that day of accounting than we were yesterday at this time, right? And, and we're, tomorrow we'll be 24 hours yet closer still. But have you ever wondered what's, what's going to happen on that day? Like when you stand before the judgment seat of God, what, 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 what is, what's that going to be like? Uh, some of you might be familiar with something called chick tracks. That's chick as in somebody's name, not as in a 70s uh, slang term for women, okay? But chick tracks. I, I happen to have one for you right here. Um, showing my age, by the way, with these, these tracks. Um, I remember this particular, this very track. Um, it says, this was your life. I remember this distinctly when I was a little boy reading this track in church and being scared to death. 
when I read this track. I mean, I was petrified. Um, here, here's how the track starts off. It starts off with this dude all polished, looking at his nice fancy sports car, and then he just has a heart attack and he dies. And then the um, you know, preacher's preaching his funeral. And a- after his funeral, um, he's coming up out of the grave to, to go to the judgment seat of God. Now, just for the record, okay, God's not going to wait until after your funeral before you go to the judgment seat of God, okay? That, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and so he's, he's taken to the judgment seat of God. Um, and as he stands before the judgment seat of God, he, you know, he, there's this film, if you will, review his life, this is your life, and it's you know, with photographic evidence and everything about, you know, this is what you did from when you were a baby to when you were uh, making, uh, you know, nasty jokes with your friends to when you were looking at people, uh, women, and inappropriately, et cetera, et cetera. All the way to the point where, well, there you were in church, you were sitting in church, and you're like wondering who's winning the ball game, and when is that preacher finally going to get done preaching? Uh, where some of you might be even right now, right? Um, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't repent, and the man dies without Christ, and he's justly sentenced to hell. Now, I don't think that, that we're going to watch a video recording of our life when we go to the judgment seat of God. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I could be wrong, okay? That, it's neither here nor there. But, but I, I do think that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and again, let's, let me be clear, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe we're going to have a supernatural awareness of our utter fallenness. We will be intimately aware of our sin. You know, we're not we're not going to be there before the judgment seat of Christ wondering, you know, am I sinful that it's going to be crystal clear to us. But on that day when the scripture says we will give an account of ourselves to God, and if God were to ask us, why should I let you in my heaven? I'm going to tell you now that there is only one answer that will do. There's only one answer that is acceptable on that day. If God were to say to you, why should I let you in my heaven? Your answer should be this. You shouldn't. God, you shouldn't let me in your heaven. Based on my own righteousness, you shouldn't let me in your heaven. But you have saved me through your son, Jesus. And Jesus has paid the penalty that I owe. I have no righteousness of my own to bring before you, God. But on the basis of your son's perfect righteousness... I think you should allow me into heaven. That's the only satisfactory answer. We will all give an account of our lives to God. And again, I hope it's not a video account. I can just shudder to think of times in my own life when I think, oh my goodness, I hope that's not going to be on video. But however that accounting goes, I want you to know it's only through Jesus that we pass the test. And so we don't pass judgment on our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't do it in their strength. And we don't don't despise our brothers and sisters in Christ in their weakness. But we recognize, rather, that we all belong to the Lord. And so we recognize that we have the responsibility then to protect one another's consciousness because these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for our time together. I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there's anyone here today who's, who's not ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 
Lord, that they would perhaps reach out to a friend, that they would reach out to me, somebody watching us on a computer screen right, right now is having that question, they would reach out through an email or a phone call to the office, Lord, so that we might be able to talk to them and that you might open their heart to believe in Christ. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, help us then to learn the importance of loving our brothers and sisters well and respecting their consciousness that those of us who are weak, that we might not pass judgment on those who are strong. And likewise, those of us who are strong, that we might not despise those who are weak, but we would love one another in a Christ-like love. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.